Hebrews 13, the first three verses. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners, as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to not only understand it, but Father, to conform our lives to it, to glorify you through it. And so receive the uh, continued responses of our hearts, our worship, and uh, we pray that by your grace, we would be strengthened to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Back in 1928, there was an odd case that came to the Massachusetts court uh, there was a man who had been walking along one of these long docks that goes out into the uh, ocean, and he tripped over a rope and fell into the ocean. He couldn't swim, and uh, he came up, managed to come up twice, blubbering and crying for help, saying that he could not swim. His friends were too far away to get there in time. In the meantime, there was a, a young man who was an excellent swimmer who was sunbathing on the uh, dock <clears throat> and uh, he was lying in his deck chair and he saw the man fall into the water he turned his head and watched him floundering in the water uh, but did nothing and uh, the guy came up he went down he came up again and then he disappeared well the um, friends of this man were so upset that they sued the sunbather uh, because of his callous indifference to this man's drowning. They lost in court, and the court basically said that uh, he had no legal responsibility to save the other man's life. He had every legal right to mind his own business and refuse to become involved. Now, whatever you think about the legal aspect of that, I think you would all recognize that there's something odd about a person just in terms of sheer humanity and decency. And I think you would think it even more odd if the man who was drowning was his friend or was, you know, a close relative, a brother or a sister. Uh, usually, there are uh, people are much more motivated uh, to do something to help when they are related. Uh, as Gary mentioned earlier, Rodney is not here this morning because he's with his sister who was uh, dying of cancer, has already uh, died. That's what family does for each other. And the Bible says that there is some kind of a spiritual connection between believers that makes them spiritually brothers and sisters. And that connection makes us never want to act like that sunbather acted in 1928 when we see a brother or a sister who was in need. Brotherly love does not just look at what I must do legally. No, uh, love goes way beyond that. It motivates us in ways that the law alone could not do. And love even motivates us to take risks on behalf of our brothers and sisters, to make sacrifices on their behalf. I, I think all of us would recognize. We'd stay up all night, you know, with a... A, a daughter or a son who was in the hospital sick. Uh, we would uh, babysit, you know, for a sister who's in labor. Uh, we do those kinds of things. They come very uh, naturally to us as Christians. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. The three commands for love in the first three verses of this chapter 
call us to take some risks in love. So that's what we're going to look at on this uh, day of prayer for the persecuted church, that love takes risks. Okay, the first command in verse 1 is, let brotherly love continue. And the word for brotherly love is Philadelphia. It's made up of two Greek words, phileo, which is a word that means friendship, uh, love, the kind of love where you just love hanging around with each other. You enjoy e each other's company. And then there's the word autophos, which means brother. And you put the two together into one word and you get Philadelphia. So it's the kind of affection and loyalty that you would expect in a very closely knit family that loves each other, enjoys being uh, together, but that is something that we are commanded to have within the body of Christ. Why? Because we truly are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We have actually a closer kinship to each other spiritually in terms of our inner man than many families have uh, physically, a very close a kinship to each other and it's interesting that he doesn't command us to start loving each other as brothers he assumes every believer is going to have that love at least in some seed form uh, for each other as Calvin comments we can only be Christians if we are brethren those two concepts go hand in hand so God is assuming all true Christians will have a relationship of spiritual family and they're going to at least have some of this brotherly love for each other so we're not commanded to start exhibiting brotherly love. Uh, that's already there. What we're commanded to do is to let brotherly love continue. That word continue has been translated as continue, abide, endure, or as one version has it, keep on loving one another as brothers. And the idea is that brotherly love can wither because of uh, painful circumstances or betrayal or hurt, or even persecution, and it's very important that we allow it to persevere. Now, I think we can all understand the risks of the love of verse 2, where you invite strangers into your home. Now, that can be risky. We can all understand the risks of the love of verse 3, where we identify with people and we minister to people who are in jail, okay, especially in third world countries, where you might not have the kind of due process that we take for granted here uh, in America. It can be risky. But there is a risk to having brotherly love, true brotherly love, even within a safe church uh, like this. The risk of loving somebody is having your love taken advantage of, or spurned, or betrayed, or even taken for granted. And that hurts. If we get close to someone, it's very possible to be hurt by that someone. If we open up our heart, it's very easily, uh, easy for it to be betrayed. And so anyone who is risk-averse is going to tend to close off their heart at least a little bit and to restrict relationships to what is safe. It's easier to do that than to persevere with brotherly love when you're uh, facing sticky and messy situations. Uh, my siblings and I faced a lot of uh, painful abuse, uh, not only from other school people and in the boarding school that we grew up in. We, we were left in boarding school from age six and on, but also from some of the adults 
and I can't speak for my brothers on how they reacted to the, to, to the abuse, but my tendency was to protect myself by closing off my heart to some degree and being friendly, but making, it, making sure it was more superficial, kind of keeping people a little bit uh, at a, a distance. And various people have put into their lives safety mechanisms like that that shut down brotherly love when things get a little bit too risky. And so that's the, the one point that I want to emphasize, that the very call to persevere implies that there can be risks in practicing brotherly love to the point where me, we may not even want to try it anymore. But when we do that, we miss out on the joys of friendship, the joys of relationship and the incredible spiritual growth process that God says can only take place within the church, within the body of Christ. He is ordained for his grace and his blessings uh, to flow uh, through Zion. I have known people who have come from such broken families that they vowed that they would never get married. They don't want to take the risk. Uh, the risk of pain and betrayal that they have seen in their parents just seems too much, too great for them. I've known people who don't attend church because they have been so hurt in another church that they don't ever want to take the risks of brotherly love again. And so there's a reason why this author commands us, commands believers, let brotherly love continue. Let it persevere. Let it endure. It is worth it. It's as we let brotherly love continue that we are smack dab in the middle of God's blessing. In fact, uh, the greatest chapter on love, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 13, assumes the same point. It assumes that love is risky. It tells us love suffers long. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So most of those words imply there is some risk in true love, and that is what the writer to Hebrews means here. But risk is actually a good barometer of the nature of our agape love, uh, and, but it's also the, a good barometer of the nature of brotherly love. When brotherly love is a grace given by God, it perseveres, it abides, it continues. Okay, If it hasn't started, we're not yet true believers. Paul is so convinced that all Christians have this brotherly love that he says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. But concerning brotherly love... You have no need that I write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Now that passage indicates that our brotherly love needs to extend beyond the local church. Now it becomes more of a challenge the further out you get, but even to extend to other countries like theirs was extending uh, to Macedonia. In fact, the next two verses really are just outlining two manifestations of this brotherly love in action. Uh, there's an old saying, a calm sea does not produce a skilled sailor. Now, you might prefer to sail in calm seas where there's just no waves whatsoever. Um, and it can be fun that way. I've sailed uh, where it's just moderate, you know, smooth sailing. It was a lot of fun. But the sailor who has been through quite a few storms, the seasoned sailor, knows sailing much more deeply, far better than 
the person who has just sailed, you know, he's got the romance of sailing. And the same is true of love. If the only relationships we're willing to be involved on are the ones where there are calm seas, you'll never have the opportunity to grow deeply, grow in depth in this skilled love. Now, I'm sure that the first sailor who headed beyond the sight of shore was a little bit nervous. Uh, he was taking some risks, but he was also embarking on adventure and enjoying sights and sounds that others could only imagine and returning with treasures that nobody else would be able to enjoy. I don't know who said it, but I've got in my notes a quote uh, from someone who said, you cannot discover new oceans unless you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. And I think that's true in the spiritual arena as well. Those who trust God enough to lose sight of the safety of the shore can focus full-heartedly on an adventure of full uh, lifetime pursuing of God and pursuing of our calling with others. So Paul is calling us to take the risk of sailing further into our relationships with spiritual brothers and sisters than we have ever sailed before. And verses 2 and 3 amplify with two examples of what that might look like. The second commandment is given in verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, this too has both risks and rewards. I mean, the risk might be very, very minimal. You might even laugh at a person who thinks this is risky. It might be, well, I don't know what to say. You know, it's going to be a very awkward conversation if I have this person in my, in my living room. And my advice would be, well, invite two or three people. You know, there'll be more people to keep the conversation going. But it might be more risky. It might be a situation, if I let that stranger into my home, they could take advantage of me. Uh, there are risks, but there are also incredible rewards to this kind of love. The author only picks out one reward. If you looked in the Old Testament, you'd say, what are all of the rewards of this kind of hospitality? He picks out one of them, that some of the people in the Old Testament, when they extended hospitality, actually had the privilege of bringing hospitality to an angel. Now, that's an incredible reward. Now, the fact that he brings that cool one does not mean that he's minimizing the other rewards of hospitality. He's just saying there are rewards. Here's one example of a reward that came in the Old Testament for hospitality. Uh, Jesus said that when you extend hospitality to ministers, you share in the eternal reward that they will receive in heaven from their ministry. Now, that's huge. Uh, some of you couldn't be missionaries, to headhunters at least, uh, you probably couldn't be conference speakers, but that's okay. When you invite one of those missionaries into your home and you bend over backwards to make them relaxed and to make them uh, feel comfortable and make them have a good time in your home so that they leave this city refreshed, God says you are going to be sharing in the rewards that they receive from their incredible sacrifices out there in the mission field. And just in case you think extending hospitality to nobodies doesn't have a reward, Jesus says, and whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. And I think one of them was praying earlier, I forget if it was David or somebody, but uh, giving us the opportunity to love those who are tough to love. Matthew 5, 46 says, when you love on those who are tough to love, you will receive a reward. 
Now, he doesn't tell us what the reward is going to be, but the love of hospitality is indeed rewarding. But it's so easy to get um, busy in life to a degree where we forget. We neglect things like that. And so Hebrews tells us, do not forget to entertain strangers. It's very easy to allow months and months to go by without doing so. And so if this is an important part of our lives, it needs to be planned for. It needs to be budgeted for. Is this in part, you got hospitality as part of your budget. Uh, It needs to be scheduled. It needs to be talked about. It needs to be tried. It's easy to neglect hospitality because of uh, inconvenience or the difficulty of dealing with the children of other people or the wear and tear that comes to your house or the work involved and the mess. I mean, these are risks that you're taking to that kind of love. I mean, uh, Kathy will tell you there has been a ton of wear and tear in our house, but we really don't consider it a big deal because the rewards of hospitality far outweigh any of those kinds of risks. And by the way, the word for entertain strangers is philoxonia. It's made up of two Greek words, phileo, that's the, the, the friendship, the close, close friendship love that we uh, talked about earlier, and then the word xenia, which is the word for stranger. Now, that seems like an oxymoron, uh, really close friendship and strangers. Uh, how do those two go, go together? But this is actually the word for hospitality. Hospitality means you're extending friendship, closeness, opening up your life to a person who was a stranger so that he no longer is a stranger. So now he's considered in the relationship of phileo. That's the meaning uh, of the term. And um, I think it's a shame that the New King James Version translates it as entertain because entertainment and hospitality are quite different. Uh, The word does not mean entertain. It means to extend hospitality. It's bringing a stranger into your home, becoming close enough that he's no longer a stranger. Now, let's just contrast the two. Entertainment is opening your home to somebody who is a stranger, granted, and he doesn't know what the inside of your home looks like on a day-to-day basis. He may get invited once a year on a very special occasion, uh, and you have to wait for the timing uh, to be able to have the energy and the wherewithal to be able to put on something special, but he is really a stranger to what your home looks like, and he remains a stranger. The only people who see the real home, the real you, the real kids, are your family and your very close friends. And... Um, You could entertain a person several times, and he might still be a stranger to your home, which contradicts the meaning of this term. Now, let me try to paint a picture of some of the nuanced differences between entertainment and the real meaning of this word, where the person sees the real you. In my mind, entertaining is putting on a big production that is exhausting, okay? It involves perhaps fine china and cloth napkins and food designed to impress, but man, it took you all day to cook this and you're really, really tired. The carpet gets clean because you would be embarrassed if they realized how dirty you let your carpet get. You might even buy some new furniture and perhaps you send the kids off to a babysitter or grandma to take care of them because, oh, it would be so humiliating if one of my kids spit up or spilled on these guests in some way. 
And uh, everything about the evening is designed to impress and to show the stranger that you've got everything in this home perfectly put together. But it's very difficult to relax, okay? It's an artificial environment. It's not your real home, okay? To the guests, it's not a close friend relationship, but a special occasion relationship. It's not a close friend home, but a special occasion home. So that's the first word picture, the picture of entertaining. And you can't afford to do that very often uh, because it'll just wear you out. But when you extend hospitality, which is the meaning of this word, a stranger to your home very quickly becomes a friend and at ease in your home. That's the meaning of hospitality. Okay, it's philoxenia, a love that brings a stranger into a friendship relationship. Now this word implies you're inviting people into your life with all of its messiness. You might be leading the guests into your living room and, oh, the kids have just put out some toys and you kick the toys under the sofa and you're just relaxed, though, and you talk with these people and you're focused on the relationship and the guest relaxes and he begins to feel like he is at home. Now, that's not to say that there's not a place for entertainment and putting on a big spread. Uh, we love putting on those kinds of things as well. We do both entertaining and hospitality both are are great things to do especially on you know thanksgiving and christmas and different occasions like that you do th things that are are, are are you know going way beyond the call of duty but the day in and day out hospitality that god calls all believers to be involved in is a much more down to earth and real experience there are so many expectations of entertainment and so much pride at stake that it might happen once or twice a year. But the day in and day out hospitality that Scripture describes is inviting people into your ordinary life and schedule. Now that ought to be a relief to you. He's not saying you got to entertain. Constantly be putting on these huge parties, you know, these huge things that wear you out. Instead, he's commanding you to be real and to open up your heart to strangers so that they can become friends and no longer strangers. Now, I love the title of one book on hospitality, highly recommended book, Open Heart and Open Home. Okay, I think that title all by itself expresses philoxenia, what hospitality is really all about. But here's where most people see obeying this command as risky that other person might see the real you, the real home, which is always a mess, right? Uh, and it might be hard on your pride. They might dry, uh, drop in right when you are chewing the kids out. And horrors, they're going to realize I don't have perfect kids. That would be embarrassing. Hospitality is riskier than entertainment. What if they judge me for that old sofa that is just beginning to get threadbare? I just can't bear them realizing what a threadbare sofa I have. We've got to buy a new sofa. What if they don't like my food? What if my kids misbehave and embarrass me? See, people get stressed out because their expectations for hospitality have nothing to do with inviting people into their lives with all of its messiness and have everything to do with hiding the real you and putting on a show for two or three hours, okay? Now, we've told people over and over, just relax. You know, you don't have to expect to have everything be perfect. So what if you got some burning, you know, that's happened on your food and you've had to supplement with something else? 
the expectations of perfection are still there and they feel really stressed out. So we said, okay, why don't you start slowly? You can't invite somebody into your home. Okay, fine, take them out on a picnic. And you know what happens? Oh man, they gotta go shopping for the perfect picnic basket and they're, they're worried about, are they gonna like this wine? What about these sandwiches now? We gotta do something else. They're stressed out there too. It's just really hard to get some people past entertainment and into real hospitality. And so um, we, we, we really try to encourage people. It's not how perfect your environment is. Some of the best memories that I've ever had of philoxenia, of true hospitality, took place in Ethiopia where I grew up in a one-room house with a thatched roof, bugs around, cows are over there, pooping actually, right, while you're eating. <laughs> I mean, it, it, if you lived in those houses, you would realize you're getting used to a lot. Dirt floor, chickens and dogs running around, and yet these people opened up their lives to us in a way that I still to this day have incredibly fond memories of, okay? That's philoxenia. They were real, and we were able to enter into their lives. But in any case, um, this is what we're commanded to do is drop our pride, drop our facade. Let's be open with each other and let people know where we are at. And sure, we have our down times where uh, we might even be embarrassed, but let's be uh, people characterized by philoxenia. Now let's switch gears from hospitality in your home to being real when you go to a nursing home. That too can be philoxenia, friendship, love towards strangers. But the risk there is that you will make the sacrifices of going to a nursing home and not know what to say. And it says, well, I, I, I just, I'm not a good conversationalist. I really can't do that. Or you might feel, uh, I'm going to do this, and they don't even remember me. Is this really worth it? I might be forgotten or misunderstood, or I might be underappreciated. There are always risks involved in loving strangers. So let me end this point by just pointing out that all risks test the genuineness of our love. If our love perseveres despite the problems and despite the rejections, it is real, okay? I once uh, read the statement that Pilate was merciful to Jesus till it became risky to do so. And risk tested the fakeness of his mercy. He wanted to release Jesus until it looked like his job and his own safety might be at risk if he did the right thing. And it is our willingness to take some risk that tests the character of our love and of our hospitality. John Gardner said, one of the reasons why mature people stop growing and learning is that they become less and less willing to risk failure. Well, that should not be true of any of us. The greatest friends are the ones who are also exposed to the greatest risks, but they also experience the greatest rewards. Okay, the third risk of love that we're commanded to have is in verse three. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. I remember the bitter sweetness of the first time that I did this in Ethiopia. I was a kid who had walked over an hour to get to town, uh, which was the only place where I could buy some candy. I didn't have much uh, money back in those days, but every once in a while, we were able to go to town and get a treat. And I was with one of my Ethiopian friends. We had made that trek. And as I was leaving town, we walked past 
the prison compound, and my friend said, look, it's our pastors who are in the prison compound. And uh, the pastors there, were, oh, they were so persecuted while, uh, while we were there. And if you're in an Ethiopian jail, you didn't get to eat unless your relatives or friends brought you something to eat. And unless they bribed the guards, they would defile the food, so it was inedible anyway. It was not like our prisons. So these people were hungry. My parents did some stuff for, for them anyway. There wasn't much I could do. I had already blown all my money. But when the guards weren't looking, I threw the candy over the fence to um, uh, one of the pastors, and he shared it with the other pastors. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, I wish I had more that I could share with them. But the look of delight on their faces when they were eating this candy was just, it stuck with me. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I don't have the opportunity to visit those in prison to the same degree that people in Ethiopia had, but I, be I believe God gives special, special rewards to those who minister in this way to the persecuted. And whatever opportunities that we can have, that we can cast this vision into the lives of our children, I, I think the better off that we will uh, be and that they, that they themselves will be. Now, there are lots of situations that are analogous. When pastors are sued in our own country for preaching against our cultural sins, it's very easy for people to avoid the risk and to just stop going to that church. They don't want the risk of being associated with a controversial fellow. That's why homosexuals threaten the big churches first, because they are the least likely ones to have people with this kind of brotherly love. And so when things get controversial, peeps, people stop coming. Finances dry, dry up. And because the church is in debt, the big churches cave in to the homosexual bullies. They stop preaching the whole counsel of God. Now the point of that illustration is that brotherly love is critical to a strong church remaining strong. When pastors are criticized in blogs, it's very easy for people to pile on or at least to avoid the controversy rather than having their pastors back. There are any number of inconveniences that might make us reluctant to get involved in writing campaigns on behalf of the persecuted in Europe and Africa and Asia. But if we think we live in an age when this admonition is no longer needed, we have simply not been reading the news. 66 governments of the world severely restrict the freedoms of an estimated 400 million Christians. That, that's pretty significant. It's estimated that an average of 300,000 Christians are killed for their faith every year. 300,000. Frontline Fellowship claims that at least 42 million Christians were martyred during the 20th century. Indeed, the last century has been called by Peter Hammond the greatest century of persecution that the church has ever seen. And one of the reasons for it I've mentioned before is because it's the greatest growth of the church. Satan has just ticked off. He's so angry at how fast Christianity uh, has been spreading. But there are all kinds of opportunities to get involved by remembering the persecuted. Now, this is a very convicting phrase. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Now, if you're in a jail in the first century and you were chained to another prisoner, <laughs> you couldn't forget him any moment of the day. You can't get away from him. Even at night, 
you're probably going to be dreaming. At least you're going to be woken up every once in a while when you're trying to turn over. Oops, I can't turn over because I'm chained to this guy. You cannot forget him. It's day and night we have the persecuted before us. Now, is it even possible to be able to fulfill this commandment that he uh, gives to remember them as if chained with them? Well, this is where Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors and Frontline Fellowship and other organizations come in. They send out regular prayer alerts, and hey, it's so easy. All you have to do is click on a button, and it prints off, distribute it to your family, you pray, or you write letters or whatever. It's so easy. Uh, they've got fantastic literature. They've got nicely laid out web pages. They've got programs for writing letters, and actually, they make that easy. You don't even have to buy a stamp. They will deliver it for you, right? You can send clothes uh, through them. And there are other ways that make it easier to bless those who are being persecuted in other countries. Lots and lots of aids. Now, the word remember has a fuller meaning than simply thinking about them occasionally. Now, the Greek word implies there's action. There's action, something you're doing. And let me suggest some ways that we can do so. We can obviously financially support those who uh, have boots on the ground in other countries. Uh, we can once in a while schedule a half hour for the family to pray together and write some letters together. Uh, and uh, again, these organizations will help to make that uh, happen. Um, very, very young age, we can help our children remember the persecuted by making bulletin boards for them. We used to have uh, pictures of the missionaries when the kids were very young because they couldn't read it, uh, quite as well, but those pictures always reminded them to be praying. Uh, we can oppose persecuting religions such as communism, which is a religion. People don't think it is, but it has all the characteristics of a religion. Or atheism, which is a religion, has all the characteristics of a religion. Or Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism, we can oppose those. We can be involved once a year in putting together action packs for the Voice of the Martyrs to distribute. And I think Gary mentioned that um, Davises are going to be here next week, right, uh, uh, for that purpose. And as more and more persecution comes to America, we can advocate with civil magistrates to protect pastors and other Christians who get heat from the GLBT community or from statists who want to control the pulpits. We can visit those in hospitals or nursing homes. We can bring them care packages. We can ask Congress to quit financing mass murderers in other countries. They're constantly doing that. We can stand up and be heard when third world countries in Africa are pushed into communism and say, no, we don't want that. Uh, when people criticize Uganda for making homosexuality a crime, don't be silent. Stand up for those Christians who are doing the right thing. By the way, America's criticism, fierce criticism of Uganda is persecution. It's persecution of Christians. We're a persecuting country. And uh, we cannot be uh, silent in the face of that. So there's lots of things we can do to remember them. And if one doesn't fit your personality, fine. Go find another way of remembering them. But we can also ask God to leverage the sufferings of those people for the advancement of the kingdom. I loved uh, John Piper's uh, sermon, and he's written a book on that as well. Don't waste your cancer. Uh, God has a purpose for cancer. God has a purpose for persecution. And based on uh, Paul's uh, lengthy statement in Philippians chapter 1, Dr. Jim Cunningham of Open Doors suggested three good things that God brings out of persecution. You maybe didn't think about God bringing good things out of persecution. Oh, yes, he does. 
Just as Hebrews admonishes us to remember those in prison, Paul asked the believers, remember my chains, and then Paul went on to give three purposes for the persecution that he was facing. He was reminding them not to waste a good persecution, right? Take advantage of what God is doing through it. First, Paul said that the chains that he was wearing actually were being used by God to further the gospel. Paul preached to fellow prisoners. You know, they were a captive audience. They couldn't get away from him. He preached to guards who were chained on the other hand. They were a captive audience who couldn't get away from them. Uh, when the judges were demanding an explanation of what he was doing, he said, oh, all I'm doing is I'm preaching this message. And he would preach the gospel to them. And he was saying there are so many people who are becoming Christians as a result of his imprisonment, even some from Caesar's household were becoming Christians. And so God was advancing the cause of the gospel through persecution. Now, if you knew that your persecution was going to result in that kind of thing happening, it'd be pretty encouraging, wouldn't it? Uh, I was very encouraged when, and mine was pretty mild compared to what most people suffer, but I was very encouraged when the death threats and the slander and the other persecution I was receiving after teaching on what the Bible says about homosexuality uh, caused tens of thousands of um, downloads of my material from biblical blueprints and from uh, the sermons on the uh, Dominion Covenant Church website from uh, happening. And I was going onto their blogs and looking, and finally, and people were saying, oh yeah, this is one grandmother says, I'm combing through every sermon that he has, trying to find some juicy quotes we can use against him. And I'm thinking, praise God, you know, they're, they're, they're listening to the, the gospel for the first time. And it's true, this can be used, persecution can be used for the advancement of his kingdom. They actually finally started writing saying, uh, let's not talk about Pastor Kaiser anymore, we're giving him too much good advertising. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's right. Anyway, I was reading the testimony of a believer from a Muslim country, he said this, originally I went to jail for being bad and doing drugs. Now when I go to church on Sundays to preach, I prepare two sermons, one for the people and one for the police. They come and arrest me and take me off to jail and ask me, what are you teaching the people? So I have a sermon all prepared that I share with the police. Now I go to jail willingly to share Jesus Christ. It has actually worked out quite well. We are getting to know many police and military and government officials, and we are able to build bridges to them and tell them things about Jesus Christ and Christianity that they never knew before. The second good thing that came out of Paul's chains was that it made people much bolder to share Christ with them. Now, you'd think it would do the exact opposite. They see Paul in prison, you'd think they'd get fearful and say, man, we better not preach like he preaches. But no, they watched Paul have such boldness and say, no, I'm not even a prisoner of Rome. I'm in a prisoner of Christ. I'm right where Christ wants me to be. And they saw the boldness and the effectiveness by which he used this tool of jail that it made them much more bold uh, to face uh, persecution as well. And uh, in effect, they were not wasting their persecution. I don't get discouraged by reading the testimonies of people being persecuted and martyred in other countries. It inspires me to imitate their boldness and to do more for Christ here. So Paul says it advanced the gospel. Secondly, it made people bolder, and thirdly, it caused people to pray. When I was studying some months ago about the persecution of the Huguenots in the 15, 1600s, 
uh, I saw that all three of those purposes were definitely fulfilled in their lives. It spread the gospel like crazy. Rather than intimidating Christians, it made them far bolder when they were being persecuted, and it stirred up the worldwide church of God for prayer on their behalf. There are more Muslims becoming Christians today than ever before, and part of it is that Muslims are seeing the evil fruit of their system, and they're seeing the love of, of Christians, and it's making them realize they want what the Christians have. Hudson Taylor, the great man of faith who founded the China Inland Mission, said this about faith and risk. He said, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. And so all three actions of love in these verses are actions that flow from faith. Let's be a congregation that's willing to love on each other, to not to forget, to entertain, uh, or not entertain, not to forget to extend hospitality, okay, with the, use the term right, and to love on the persecuted, whatever the risks, and may God be glorified. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and the challenges that it brings and how you sanctify your people through your truth. And we desire to be sanctified, to grow up into you in all things as a result of having heard these scriptures. And so we pray that you would strengthen our resolve uh, to do, uh, uh, fill, uh, fulfill the three commandments that you have given to us in Hebrews 13, 1 through 3. And we'll be sure to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.